Eliezer Blatt is a public speaking expert who spent the last 25 years training the who's who on the Jewish speaking circuit today. Eliezer also coaches emerging Jewish clergy, educators, and leaders in his role as adjunct professor at Yeshiva University. And Eliezer has also been the public speaking trainer for over 300 couples over the last 20 years at the Jerusalem Kollel. He flies around the globe working in person and virtually coaching CEOs, business owners, speakers, top organizations, and high achievers. Eliezer Blatt builds people into speakers and speakers into leaders. But what most people don't know about Eliezer Blatt is that his background is just as fascinating as any of the stories that he helps his students tell. When he was just 18 years old, Eliezer was the drummer of a rock band that got signed by a major music label. Then he worked behind the scenes at MTV, The Cosby Show, and PBS's Reading Rainbow. And somehow he ended up studying at Asha Torah in Yerushalayim and served as Rabbi Noach Weinberg's personal assistant. Join me today as we discuss TV, Torah, and talking with the man that Mishpacha magazine called the Dale Carnegie of the Jewish world, Eliezer Blatt. How are you? Look at this. Daniel Steinberg, what do you know? <laughs> it's a legendary Eliezer Blatt. <laughs> uh, let me turn you up a little. Let, let's talk a little bit about you. You're the, you've been called by Mishpacha the Dale Carnegie of the Jewish world. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and you spent the last 20 years training the, the who's who in, on the Jew, Jewish speaking circuit today. So um, tell me some of your uh, your accomplishments, some of the, some of your big success stories. Some of the people who are some of my big my you know what I'll tell you the truth. My biggest success stories aren't aren't the biz, biggest uh, successes that people think they are. You know, people look at Charlie Arari and Yo Gold and Lori Palatnik. You know, Yom Tov Glazer. Oh, they, oh, they like like when they came to me, they were you know, and I started them uh, from scratch. They were already good. My job for them was working with them and bringing them up from, you know, great to awesome. Um, but the day-to-day -day people I'm working with, I'm working with CEOs, I'm working with businesses, I'm working with high achievers, people want to get out there who normally wouldn't do a breakout session or are invited to uh, places. A lot of women now um, are starting their own businesses, they're doing, uh, they're doing very well, but they don't have much public speaking experience. So they'll come to me and, you know, how do I put together a speech? How do, and then all the presentation skills, standing, moving, dress and appearance, vocal variety, you know, whatever it might be for, for will we'll work um, organically with that uh, person. Those to me, people who are doing that, people start doing their own um, webinars and podcasts and videos. Those those are the successes for me. Mm -hmm. Great. OK, yeah. so so let's take a step back and tell me how you got into the business. Yeah, so my background was I was being groomed to make television shows. Well, actually, before before that, while I was in high school, I played in a band, and we won the Battle of the Bands, and we got re uh, recording time in a major studio, two hours uh, recording, and a producer heard us, and he wanted us to be the opening act for a major group. They insured my hands. They said no more sports. They were investing too much. Um, we made a record. You know what a record is? You know, it's like a it's it's like a, a CD on steroids. <laughs> What kind of what kind of music was it? It was uh how much are you into music? I don't well, know how, I, how to I, describe this. I'm I'm not into music now, but I but that era I'm still familiar with. So, okay, so uh, yeah, and how how old are you now? You're fifty just turned fifty. You just turned fifty. I remember seeing something. You had a birthday, fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I can I can talk to you. A lot of the youngsters, you know, when I tell them about records and you know, the Cosby show, you know, the things that I worked on, reading Rainbow, that they they're like 
Huh? Oh, I think my grandmother watched that. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, uh, yeah, so we were going to make it. We were going to go on tour with, you, you'd appreciate this. A lot of people don't. Uh, uh, we were going to open up for Hall and Oats. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what they wanted was they uh, they wanted a mellow group at in the 80s. In the 80s, when I was playing, you know, my That's rock the, and roll the, drums. The 1980s for anybody listening. <laughs> <laughs> 1880s, yeah. In the 1980s, um, most of the young bands were playing heavy metal. So a, a group that was playing more softer rock, younger guys, was was harder to find because people weren't into it so much. But we were playing a lot of covers from Bread, Chicago, Eagles. So the producer thought that we would be a good uh, warm-up group. He liked our sound. And uh, uh, we had a great singer, a songwriter. And so they wanted to make the singer of my band the Elvis of the 80s. And if you're going to be a new group that's going to come up, you, so you're an opening. You, you start if you're an opening group, you have a very good chance to make it. We were going to be the first group on VH1's um, uh, section, which was Mellow Mellow Rock. So we did a video, ready to go. Um, but the singer of my band had a nervous breakdown. We were just his his band. He was the singer songwriter star. So that was it. So then I had to go to college. Why? Because they said when you don't know what you want to do with your life, you got to go to college. Yeah. So off I went. I went into college, and I saw they had an extra television department. So I skipped my beginning years. I was a singer, dancer, actor in my grade school. I loved to be up there. That with my drumming. So I was always performing before that. So I figured television was a little of all of that. Got my degree. Was ready to go off to L.A. where the shows are made. But uh, Hashem had something different in mind, and he put the number one situation comedy, the Cosby Show, right in Brooklyn Studios. I walked in. I said, "I'm just out of college. Try me out." After a week, they hired me as a writer's assistant. Great wow. opening level position. You know from your Saturday Night Live and your yeah. your, uh, your radio um, uh, things. So that was a great opening. You wanted to be in front of the camera or behind the camera? I wanted to be, at this point, behind the camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting question because I was always, right, but I end, I wanted to be behind the, the, the camera. I wasn't, I didn't specifically make that choice. It was just that that was what was coming up. You know, I wasn't. Yeah. Whatever you could take. I wasn't looking to be an actor or uh, something like that. So I thought being, uh, you know, making the shows, and it just so happened, you know, after taking, having a degree in television, making television shows, I loved it. So I figured, let me, let me get into that. So the Cosby Show was filmed in Brooklyn, and and you were a writer's assistant to, I guess they had a team of writers, and you would run. Yeah, yeah, they had a team of writers um, that... Uh, they weren't they weren't in brooklyn so much you know we would do stuff in manhattan i'd go to their apartments they would be writing the show we'd have uh bill on the uh on the line he'd be in uh, atlantic city uh doing his shows and they would have conference calls and i'd be in the room i got a funny story on the on the, on the writing of the show uh, they were writing one of the shows it was the first season hot you know wow. best writers beginning yeah. best directors uh you know everybody was the for me it was great just starting out because i had the best of the best on the crew you know, NBC was investing a lot because they had 20 million people watching. So it was, uh, it was worth it for them. So I, we were in and we were writing and there was a, a certain point in the, uh, that they were, when they were writing the script that they got a little, uh, stuck. And so they turned around to me. I was over there, you know, I was, I was the assistant. I was over there, you know, working with them, uh, getting them coffee, lunch, you know, whatever they needed for the, for the top people in the world in their business. And they turned around and they said, uh, Larry, my English name, you know, Larry, what, uh, what do you think? You got a you got a line for this? You got an idea? So I gave them an idea and they liked it. And they put the line in the show. 
And when I and since I was uh, right assistant, I was able to work with all the different people. It was a very unionized um, uh, business, so you couldn't get near anybody unless. But since I was the writer's assistant, I was able to go be like with the stage manager and the director in the in the studio during the uh, shooting. And after they did the, the line, they had live studio audience, and and the line went off. The director turned around, Jay Sanders. This is this is a very special uh, part of life. And he said to me, he said, "Hey, Larry, or Blatt, maybe you know, what do you think? Twenty million people are laughing at your joke." So that was, uh, I think you could appreciate uh, what that oh how that must gosh. have been. Yeah, it's such so a that good was it. Like, so, but it was the beginning thing. of my career. I was getting my feet wet, learning a lot. Once I had that on my resume, I started working for Coca Cola commercials uh, and uh, different shows. And then I landed a great show, uh, a great job with a show called Reading Rainbow. You ever hear Reading Rainbow? I don't know how much television you were watching. Yeah, uh, yeah, we used to watch like Three Two One Contact and all those types of shows. You know. Okay. Yeah. So Reading Rainbow, you know, was like uh, what Sesame Street was to kindergarten, and teaching them to read, first graders, now to go out and read books. So it was a number one PBS uh, series, and it was a great, great show, great experience, great crew. Uh, you know, it was a number one children's show. When PBS gets together, they decide, they take all their money, and they decide on what they're going to fund. And Reading Rainbow was always the number one show. All these stations decided above McNair, Lair, Newitz Hour, all the shows that people know from PBS. Yeah. This was uh, – so I was on that uh, working uh, uh, with everybody. Yeah, question. Were, were, you, were you interested in the creative aspect of, of the show or, or were you mostly technical? Were you – were you? Uh, I was uh, – the position – I mean, we were all doing it. It was, it was all very creative and uh, it, was, it was a mix. I mean, there was writers, writers for the show, producers for the show. Um, and then, you know, we had this this close-knit crew that we worked with. It was pretty much the same tech people and the same crew. Uh, it was a small crew. I think it was like, it was like eight or nine women, producers and writers, and me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the boss. The boss was a male. So we were like the men of the uh, – of the uh, because that was just, I think, just the business of, of children's television – there was a lot of ed was women educated just so that's just what it was so yeah i came in on the on the uh the uh, tv end on that side yeah but um i was do working a lot with the editors and the, the there was there was music and there was animation and there was there was interviews so i got you know the creative part was really uh was mixed in what i loved about that show mm -hmm. and then at a certain point my boss said to me you know i'm paying an editor you know, a lot of money to edit my shows. Why don't we train you? You're you're in house. You're with us to be an editor, and you'll edit the shows. So great. So he sent me to editing school. I think it was like a five thousand uh, dollar uh, course for a CMX five thousand system. You know, those the top of the line. No, in those days, editing was big. Today, my fourteen year old probably can do on our computer what we used to do on the most sophisticated equipment. Yeah. Um, but I learned that, and now I was going to have to go into post production. It's going to take about two years to learn how to use the equipment and get experience with it and then be the editor for my uh, company. So while I was doing that, a side story started happening. I started learning at Ashatara once a week. Yeah, learning uh, about my Jewish heritage, Lo you know, loved it. And they suggested I go to Israel for three weeks to do a, uh, a uh, you know, do some classes over there. So great. I went off to Israel and I fell in love with it and I stayed for the next 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> how did you end up... Uh, we're going to Aish in, in, in the middle of this world. Where how did that open up for you? Good, good. 
while I was in the television business, um, I had a, a friend who like it, somehow he, he was introducing me to things, and he told me that Aisha Torah had classes once a week in Manhattan. It was for young professionals, and I went in there, and it was guys and gals sitting there learning um, uh, Torah from the best. You know, Aisha Torah had some of the best teachers in New York. You know, and I just I just was really turned on by what I was hearing and learning, and uh, and loved it while I was while I was working. Yeah, and so I just took. I wanted to take uh, while I was doing this uh, job to become an editor. I wanted to take three weeks off, and uh, I made it. You know, my way out to, over there, and my boss was expecting me to come back. You know, and uh, and that was it. I just realized after three weeks, I had to stay and check it out. And that. And what's your background? Are you? Are you? Were you? Did you grow up traditional? I grew up. Um, we had a, it was a conservative shul. I went to Hebrew school. But uh, I don't know about your uh, your early education, but it was more like you know playing handball, and uh, there wasn't much. You know, I thought he Hebrew to me was like a male teabag. You know, that was Hebrew. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know uh, so much. So um, the classes and going to uh, to H H was perfect for me. H, you know, was was started. You know, or guys who had limited backgrounds who didn't have a clue. Who came, you know, and he was getting guys from all over the world. These were got guys from Ivy League schools, you know, professionals. He was really looking. I mean, uh, for, for these these guys, and it was a little bit more. Uh, I would I would say from from my experience, a little more creative type of guys, as opposed to like Orsameach, as you know, was getting you know a, a lot of the learners. But as long as you know, you sat and learned, and you went and became a uh, you know a religious uh, plumber, they they were okay with that. Where Asia yeah. Torah was looking for for leaders and and for a little different direction, so for me that was great. That's what I needed. It was it was hard for me to sit down and learn, you know, eight hours a day. It wasn't like the accountants and the and the uh, doctors, uh, they loved it because they were used to learning anyway for long periods of time. So now they had truth and Torah in front of them. But for us guys like Yom Tov Glazer and 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 <laughs> and me, creative types, you know, we it was it was hard. But uh, Asia Torah helped us to utilize our talents um, to go out and and use them that way for uh, for the Jewish people. So that was the uh, that was the twist. Mm -hmm. So you picked up and you went to Israel for three weeks and then and then you had an epiphany over there that uh, this is where you need to be. Yeah, I knew I wanted to stay there. And then I got after about a year and a half, I got married. And uh, so then I, I wanted to do I was learning most of the time and doing some work. Uh, they asked me to be Rob Noah Weinberg's at personal assistant. It's a great wow. job being with a great wise man all day. Um, so now I was doing that. And then we had a, a corporate public speaking guy who came uh, to the yeshiva. And he said, you guys are learning a lot of Torah, but you need help with your presentation skills. So I was like, you know, great. I'll help you put together a class. What was my job? Taking the world's best talent and putting it on the stage, putting it on the screen. So working with some rabbinical students wasn't such a big stretch. So I started working with him for a year. Rav Noach was away a lot, fundraising for months at a time. Sometimes I said, "Let me go with you. You know, let me make your appointments, drive you." He didn't want he didn't want me uh, tailing him. So I had some downtime over there in the yeshiva. So I was working with this fellow. Uh, after a year, he was moving on, and uh, the yeshiva paid him to teach me everything he knows on the subject, which he did. Uh, and then I started reading the books. I started going to seminars. I started to interview all the Torah personalities, the English speakers that were coming through. Every week, Rav Noach would have the whoever was who's who in the English speaking, Rav Talba, Rav Brevda, the Nova Minsk Rebbe, 
Pesach Crone, you, know, you, you name it, whoever was coming through, Beryl Wine, they would uh, speak to us. And I would ask him after, I'd say what I'm doing with the public speaking, and these were the people doing it in the Torah world, and they would give me tips and points, and I used that, started teaching it, they liked it, and then they started sending me to some of the Asia Torah centers. I'd go over there and work with them, and while I was there, the local Kolel found out, the local hospital that had Jewish surgeons that were speaking. There wasn't so many Frum guys that were were doing that at the time. And then before I knew it, I was flying around the world doing public speaking training. Rob Noak used to have a joke with me when I walked into his office. He said, Hashem is saying, what do we do with this guy? Rock and roll drums, television production. Watch this. Mm-hmm. And all my whole background was just setting me up so that I would be able to do what I do. So it's, it's pretty, pretty uh, incredible adventure. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's amazing. So did you feel any uh, sense of, of um, uh, disconnectedness from, from your previous world? I mean, you basically left it, it sounds like, in kind of like over the span of three weeks, everything that you'd been working up to, you just kind of took a detour and went in a different direction. How did that, how did it work professionally? How did it work like uh, emotionally for you? Good, good question. I think emotionally, I didn't have, emotionally, I was, you know, after even staying at H for a while, um, the plan for most of the people at Asia Torah was after you finish a certain amount of time, you go back either to your respected country, you know, where you lived or somewhere else to uh, to work with people. So that's on the, the back of my mind, even though I was married after a year and a half, was that we weren't going to be staying. So the, I wasn't really, you know, I uh, think I was really, th- I was going to go back and mix and still have you know, somehow you use my career. I had people, you know, waiting for me and I had skills and talents there. And now I had this. So I was going to somehow mix and match that. I wasn't thinking that this was going to be something that was going to become my full-time uh, work. And I was, we were going to stay li- living in Israel. I didn't, uh, I didn't think that, but that's the, uh, you know, I used to wake up every morning. I wake up and tell my wife, you know, maybe I should get a job. You know, <laughs> like you said, you have one, you have one, you know? <laughs> Wow, that's, that's amazing! Uh, turned out. Amazing story. But uh, yeah, but I I used to th- you know think about it. I I remember when um when Reading Rainbow went public, you know I didn't like really know what the business part was, but they were they got uh, uh, was so good at what they did, they got to a point where other people started funding you to do other things. And I I was already out by that time, and I remember my friends writing to me, "Oh man, you blew it!" You know, like <laughs> that was like a like a big thing when someone buys out, you become public, you know, and you get, uh, I don't know how the stocks work. I, I don't know how the whole thing works out, but uh, everybody was probably uh, very happy at the time. So I was thinking, you know, did I, uh, I miss, you know, miss out on something? But you know what? What I'm thinking back now, if that when I'm able to do work with the people I'm able to work with and live in Israel and uh, do this kind of work and fly around the world, you know, it's, uh, it, it became great. You know, you always think, what if, you know, what do people always say? What if you know you did this? Where would you be now? You know, I see. Oh, my friends are retired. They they were teachers and police officers. So now they're living on their pension. You know, <laughs> they're finished. And I'm like, no, I I can't stop. You know, I don't got a I don't got a pension. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're also investing. I, I, the way I look at it is, you're investing in, in all the people that are going out and spreading Torah. So yeah, uh, so you yeah, it's very rewarding that way that I have you know thousands of people all over the world uh, when I meet them and when someone says, you know, Eliezer, every time I get up there whether it's in their business, whether they, you know, and, and they say, I think about the things that we work with. I had a fellow yesterday, um, I was on a Zoom call with him. We were we were uh, uh, reconnecting and he took my class about 15 years ago. And he said to me, he says, you know, you think you teach a public speaking class. He says, 
but I don't know if you realize what you did to people like us to show us that we we go out of our comfort zone, that we can do anything in our lives. I was like, you know, 15 years ago, and he's telling me, uh, telling me that. I, I was very struck by, you have a great tagline, uh, turning speakers into leaders, which I think- Building is speakers, thing. building people into speakers and speakers into leaders. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you explain uh, what you mean by that? Um, building people into uh, speakers, people starting from scratch, people when they just think about uh, public speaking, they want to throw up. You know, they just like the whole idea, you know, when I get up there, they say my my tongue cleaves to the top of my mouth, my knees start shaking and buckling, you know, that, you know, triage, you know, from the beginning, you know, and these are and these are people, let's say a CEO who's running a, you know, multi-million dollar company. And he has other people doing all this talking, he can't because he can't get up there, you know, and uh, to be able to you know, ask for help coaching or something like that, it's hard for them the, at the level they're at. But when they someone says to them, "Hey, we got this fellow. He's really great, easy to work with. You know, he's worked with such and such." They say, oh, "I'll give it a try." Yeah. So to be able to get into a, a, a that was a, a, was was great. So that's building people into speakers. You know, getting them. And then there's people once they're speakers. Now the next step is, you know, it's one thing to learn how to speak. It's another thing to take a leadership role, whatever that might be. A leadership role might be a leadership role at the shop's table. You know, that a, a fellow sits there, he says, you know, no one wants to listen to me. They're all talking over and I don't get a chance to get, you know, even to show them a couple of tips and ideas on how to get their attention and give them a, a, a pleasant experience at the shopper's table. That to me, that's, you know, that's already a leader. And then, you know, again, anything else, you know, you see what, you know, Charlie Arari and uh, and Yom Tov Glazer and Lori Palatnik, oh, they, you know, they became speakers, but it wasn't more than that. They're running organizations there. They're they're at an, a, the next step using their communication skills. So, those are the two the uh, how that yeah. bridged together. I'm going to ask you a question that uh, probably you're probably the only person in the world can answer this. So I have seen both Bill Cosby uh, do 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 comedy, and also Shlomo Shlomo Brevda, uh, blessed memory. Um, both of them spoke over two and a half hours at each at each uh, time I saw them. Do you think that that's possible today? Can, can someone hold someone's attention like that anymore? I mean, we're going back 20 years ago at, at the very least. I, I haven't heard this question. And, and it's, it's such a great question, but like people don't ask me or like talk about it. I'm, I'm so glad the two, pe the two people that you mentioned, you know, first of all, you know, we're dating ourselves over yeah. this. But I think it's a, there's a deeper point here that you're, that you're in your question. That's great. These are speakers that the reason why they're able and you, we don't, first of all, yeah, you're right. We don't see it so much because I think the audience's attention span just can't handle it. We'll just, you know, but, um, and it was easier over there. But it's also for, in their credit, they were able, they were doing certain things in their talks that were keeping our attention. They had us, their credibility, who they were up there. We trusted them. They became vulnerable. All the, all the things that we talk about, you know, I'm listening, you know, to uh, your podcast and stuff like that. And you see what everyone's talking about when it comes to public speaking and being vulnerable. They had all those elements, all the things that we're, we're, we're talking. They didn't have they didn't have to have a, a, a be a Superman in certain areas. You know, we have this certain speakers that are just, you know, that just wow you. They didn't have that, but they had an approachability that people, you know, and you mentioned, I mean, two different, you know, Lahab deal from yeah. <laughs> Brevda. But I, I I know that example of Rob Brevda 
I when he used to come and speak, and he and he he was one of the speakers. You know, usually we say the shorter the talk, the better. And I would ask people, but aren't there speakers that you like that you can watch forever? And usually it's like, huh? But I remember watching someone like Rob Brevda, who could just speak, and he would the stories he would tell and the Torah that would come out and. All that he'd just be all over the place. I mean, you wouldn't expect a, a gadol, a door, uh, a great, uh, you know, Torah sage um, to start talking about how he was the ping pong champion in camp. You don't like you match him, but when you do that, it was just mesmerizing. And you mentioned Rob Brevda. You, I, I have to tell this. So most people haven't, haven't heard this, but he would speak in English at Asia Torah and give his talk, and then he would go to Neve Yaakov in Israel, where I used to live, and he'd give the same talk in Hebrew. Now my Hebrew wasn't so good. But since I knew the talk and I saw where they were laughing, I knew exactly what was happening. And then he would go and give the same talk in Yiddish. Three talks, different languages. <laughs> and, I would, uh, and I would join them, even if I didn't even understand the language so much, um, because he became so approachable, so, uh, so yeah. likable that way. And I think that was, that's, the, uh, that's the trick. But there was also things, of you, these people that you mentioned, that they would use in it, they would use contrast in their talk. They talk about some current events. Oh, I, I'm that's interesting. They talk. They tell a story. Oh, that's an interesting story. They tell a joke. Oh, we all love to laugh. Yeah. Then they would say something about human nature and psychology. So they were mixing it. So you didn't even know it was hitting you, but it wasn't this. It, they kept changing it up in the content. I'm not, not even talking about the presentation skills. Yeah, vocal variety and what they were, what else they were doing, as you would know, as an as an entertainer, as a as a comedian, um, the the actual presentation part. But from the content, even the content part was just uh, had some very interesting contrast that just kept your attention for so long. Yeah, and you don't think of them as as particularly, I would say maybe dynamic speakers. You know, they they weren't there wasn't a lot of fireworks and and and. Uh, uh, you know, pyrotechnics surrounding their speech. You know, where Brevda exactly. spoke for hours in, you know, kind of a, a, a hushed tone almost. And uh, and Cosby used to sit in, in an armchair on the stage, you know, but but they could just go in hours and hours and hours and and, uh, and they held the audience's attention. Um, yeah, amazing. So tell me about some of the primary things that you cover in your in your speech uh, uh, training workshops and things like that. What, what are the things that you cover? You mentioned some of the things already, but, uh, uh, you know, walk me through it. So um, one of the things that I do is I give them things that every speaker needs. You know, there's, a cer there's certain things that I find every speaker needs, even if someone's experienced. Um, many times they'll just get a certain amount of those areas, but they they'll, they want more of it. I'll give you an example. Someone like Charlie Arari or Yo Gold, um, uh, experienced speakers already would come in. They're already speaking. They already have certain skills. Uh, they know they should move, but how to move, when to move, eye contact. Everyone's like, yeah, you have to have eye contact. Well, how long should you speak to a small group? You have a, a, a table of uh, uh, in an executive meeting and you have eight people. How long should you spend on eye contact? Well, I, I don't know. And what if, and how do you do, what about a big group? How do you, you know, tech, the technical now, what, how do you do this? I know I should move, but when and how? I know I should use my hands, but what should I, the little things. Now, a lot of people think, well, what's the big deal? You know, you get up there and, you know, you just just do it. But when you're doing it right, you're doing it in, in a certain way that keeps people's attention 
and the hand gestures are working well and the eye contact's working well and the the you become credible in their eyes and then when you have that then the message can go in the medicine could go down yeah so even though at the end of the day your content's the most important part and i think that's another thing that i i make sure my students know because they always a lot of times they hear it's not what you say how you say it yeah so that's not i mean from a from a, a torah perspective or whatever the end of the day your message is the most important thing however if you don't wrap it with the presentation skills and it doesn't get in what good is it so that's right. So I give them the uh, the skills that every speaker should need. And then it's very organic. Everybody has something different that they need. It's not one size fits all. This one needs this. This one needs this. I'll you know I'll be working with groups and they're all coming with all different dynamics. One guy's outgoing and he's, you know, has all this energy that's I work with him. Then you have the other fellow, he's like, you know, that he said, that's not me. I'm not Mr. Funny. I'm not Mr. Dynamic. This is me. So uh, work with him. You know, get him to a a point where he would be watchable, listenable. Mm -hmm. um, so what those if, are those are things. What if, how do you um, how do you approach uh, structure of a presentation? What's your what's your philosophy about that? Okay, so after after I give them, that's the presentation skills parts. I have how to do the structure, and then what happened was as I started teaching, people said, "Could you tell us about how to write down our content?" I call it the creative content development. You know. So we'd have other people do. Other rabbis came in who were experienced this and that. So they said, "No, we want you to do it." So I started putting together things, and uh, what one of the think the 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 strengths I had was to able be able to la laser focus my teaching and stuff. Like take something that might take someone a whole class to do, and just laser focus it into this is what you need to do. So I did that with the content development. How do you put down a talk? What is a good talk? What what is a, what's the structure like on the talk? Um, how do I use humor in the talk? How do I use contrast in the talk? So I started putting together that. So I had the presentation skills. And now I started weaving into my classes as opposed to just doing classes on content development that they would be more boring. You sit there and write notes, theory. So I would mix it. We do the presentation skills and say, okay, now we're going to learn how do, the, how do the professionals practice? You know, people say, why? What do you mean? How do they practice? I went over the talk twice in my head on the plane ride over. I, no, no, that's how a professional. No, I'm best when I wing it. I get a couple of take a couple of uh, uh, shots, yeah, a couple of chayims, and I'm I'm ready to go. I'm like, well, you might be ready to go, you know, for a, a lachaim, or but you're not. That's not how a professional speaker could go. <laughs> you're not going to last too long, huh? <laughs> so, uh, so that I would do the content development also. So I have a I have a system of how do you put down what what questions to ask yourself before you even take your pen to paper. How do you put down your talk? How do you practice your talk? What are certain frameworks within the talk that I can use? And these are all things I got from different coaches and different different areas and reading. I put it like all together to laser focus it so that my students will be able to get uh, the best of what they need. I, I would imagine that your background in television and editing all feeds into that because you know it, it, a talk is essentially you know it's it's a it's a it's a TV show. It's you know it, it's a you know, it's it's a show, and a show has a beginning, a show has a middle, has an end, it has to be followable. You can't take people off in different directions. Um, so I, I would imagine that that you know, from an editor's perspective, you know, you're you're very very well equipped to do that. Yeah, like you asked before, like when I was I was being groomed to make television shows and be a situation comedy director. That was what I was looking at, and then the getting onto the editing, the post production side. 
I figured those th two things together would make me very marketable. Because when I was in an editing room and I was able to know when the directors came in and they were working on the show, I knew more than just, I wasn't just a button pusher. You know, they, you know, they're very good. They were, a lot of the editors, they were very technical. You know, they knew how to use the equipment. But I had these other skills that I was able to communicate with the people. And I think my, you know, my boss that I left, you know, when I went to Yeshiva was like really hoping I came back because that was, that would have been something that he really wanted in that room because people are spending a lot of time and money with an editor. If you can have an editor that was also had a, a, a great personality with people, I'm not saying that they don't, but it just, you know, a good editor, you know, he knows what he's doing, but like, you know, just tell me what you need. You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah. You know, let me do it. You, you like it. Someone so, uh, told me there was a gal who used to work in television and she was a producer and she said, when 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 I got editing skills, I became, you know, superwoman. And she said, uh, a producer editor, they call them predators. Because <laughs> I love it. Yeah, because they're they're just so powerful. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about storytelling, because I know that's that's something that you focus on. And it's a big part of uh, public speaking, keeping people engaged. Um, what's what's your approach? What's your philosophy regarding storytelling? Yeah, storytelling is great. People need stories. Um you know, it's not what, you know, uh, what, what's that saying go? The saying goes, um, it's not, uh, they don't want to know, they don't care what you know. They want to know that you care, you know, something like that. And stories do that. Stories really get into people's kishkas, gets into their uh, uh, inside. So I'm a big believer in using storytelling in the, in the talks. Uh, and getting those in because that's what people are going to remember many times after you see someone and they say oh you know what well, you know i elias i saw you speak you know 10 years ago at this uh this dinner I'm, oh yeah do you remember what i said no but i remember the story or i remember the joke yeah that would get in so if you have those you put the the, the stories in that's what's going to engage one not just you don't just have to be some people they just have their businesses just telling stories for 45 minutes that's that's their thing you know um, but if you mix and mix and match it and you use stories and personal stories are the best. Why? Because you can remember them the easiest because they happen to you. Yeah. And you should be the person who tells your story the best. I'm always, you know, telling people that they, and you know, people say, no, Eliezer, you know, the truth is you can, you tell my story better than me, <laughs> you know, but it shouldn't be that way. Cause when the story is yours, you're bringing a lot of different things to it that no one else can bring to it. Okay, I help them with the presentation skills to help them bring it out also. But uh, a story that that happened to you, that that feeling is going to come from you, and the audience identifies with that. Also, a personal story is good because it's not like I got this story from Chicken Soup for the Soul. I got this story from uh, you know I went to you know uh, Wikipedia. I don't know if they have stories, but you know I went online. You know uh, for that. There's one thing about getting a story, and there are sometimes there are great stories. I mean, your goal is getting you know he has some personal stories, but. Mostly he hears great stories and brings them in. Uh, that, so any story that you can use, but there's nothing like a personal story. Uh, so I'm always working with, uh, I have a whole system on how to pull personal stories. Because people say, Eliezer, you got all these personal stories. I got none. I, I know that they have. So I have a, a, a class that we work on just for pulling personal, how do they can pull their own personal stories. I got that from one of my coaches and that works great. Uh, for storytelling. Maybe you can help me with this because this str I struggle with and, and I know other people struggle with it where let's say you have a story, but you, you tell the story and then at a certain point it get, you, you get lost and you're like, it just kind of fizzles out and someone's like, well, I guess you had to be there. 
you know, it, it just goes nowhere. So how do you how do you have a story that lands that actually makes an impact? Whereas, you know, sometimes it's just like a funny little anecdote and then it just it just doesn't really go anywhere and it just kind of fizzles out. Yeah. So you have to work the story and be able to say it out to see what are the what are the uh, ingredients of it? Where, where are you getting to with the story? You know, if it's just if it's if it's something short, then maybe it shouldn't be a, a full story. Maybe it is just a little a little uh, anecdote that you'll, you'll put in. But you want to be able to craft the story that you bring them in and that they feel part of it, that they're in there with you and you and you you, you bring that in. So I think the art of storytelling, you know, and then if uh, the best thing is to take be able to have your story, not just for the story, for the story's sake, but be able to teach and bring your message at the end. People, I'll get uh, uh, phone calls on the Eliezer, I'm speaking tonight. Do you have a joke for me? I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Yeah, fine. Don't. People just think of as long as they tell a joke or they tell a story, even though it has nothing to do with what they're saying. Yeah, uh, it's not ideal. You know, it's best to be able to be able to connect them and and have that. That's why my clients they start to write a journal of they have certain stories that they put down, personal stories, so they could see oh, I'm talking about this. Oh, I got this story. I got this story. Yeah. Or you got uh, I don't know as a comedian if you had you know you have jokes you know you have you know animal jokes <laughs> you know i got my favorite jokes you know i got or people who know me know know i have my favorite chicken my chicken joke <laughs> and and sometimes and I'll, I'll be at a at a house and i'll be somewhere and i'll find someone who's ripe to hear my chicken joke you know and there'll be someone who heard it already one of my friends who uh -huh. heard it many, many times and i'll say oh you heard this already he says i want to hear it again now what what is that he already so it's also in how and how you tell the joke you know how you uh embody it uh in addition how do you know something's worth retelling a, a personal story it, it what what kind of impact must it make in order to justify you telling it it it, it depends on it depends on the story uh, is the story uh, an a, an entertainment story something like that you're going to teach a lesson um is it uh, to move somebody you know today you know moving uh, on the uh uh on the posts that are coming out and the people putting out these stories it's just so you know what i used to like you know I, I like to post content and post things to teach them about public speaking communications life business whatever i can add but sometimes i'm getting these stories where i just i'm just reposting and it just says no words i'll write on it or my heart goes it just it's showing uh hostages coming back and being reunited with their families uh brothers who are coming back after uh, they have their their family hasn't seen them for what three months now and they just it's just hot, so heartwarming seeing these little stories it's it's so much more powerful than anything i'm going to write on my uh, uh post so i'll just put it in i'm always thinking you know am I, am I like you know chickening out on the on the post by giving them this um i guess it, it also depends on your market i'm sure that i'm sure there's people who you know it says eliezer where's the public speaking stuff <laughs> you know like you keep sending you know things about your uh you know because they don't happen to live in israel and are dealing with uh yeah. you know what the jewish people uh in the world is you know are dealing with with uh with this but um yeah but uh stories mm -hmm. yeah how how do you help people with stage fright is that something that you uh you deal with yeah you can't be a public speaking teacher and not deal with stage fright yeah it's not mm -hmm. someone it's not like i'm going to do a class and someone says well you know could you help me with my uh, fear of public speaking what's that <laughs> you know <laughs> and, yeah and that's a that's um that's a big one you know they say most most people are uh are uh 
what do they say? Like 95 people percent of the people are afraid to speak in public and the rest are liars. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that it's a it's a normal thing, and I tell everybody, you know, it's something everybody deals with it on a certain level. Um, every once in a while, you know, you get someone who says, "I don't have any stage fright; it's it's no problem for me." Um, there's something wrong there usually. Uh, there has to be, you know, that that there's none because it's a normal thing to have. It mm -hmm. could be what the person really wants to say is, "I'm I'm in control of that," but uh, we don't, you know. Someone says, "Eliezer, how are you going to get? Can you get rid of the the?" Um, butterflies in my stomach i say i'm not going to get rid of them i'm going to show you how to have them fly in formation you know that's the that's the thing you learn how to deal with it there's a, a very small difference between excitement and fear they're very similar things if someone was monitoring your your physiological processes they would they would have a hard time to find out if you were fearing or exciting because the breath goes the same. A lot of the same things happen when you're on a roller coaster that when you're up in front of a stage. So when you're saying that, say, oh, okay. So not, that's not a bad thing, you know? Is that anxiety, that excitement when someone jumps out of the, the airplane with the parachute on the air, is, that, is there a fear for that? No, they don't call it fear. That's excitement. So we just switch it. When you come in front of a stage and you have the ability to impart something and benefit your audience somehow, you just make that switch. So, oh, okay. So if I make a mistake and they're looking at me and all those fears, they start to wash away because I have something to to give over. I, I would tell my clients sometimes, you know, if you had a million-dollar check that give out to your audience, some donor came and said, I'll give you a million-dollar checks to give out to your audience members, but they, they have to be with you the whole time. They can't space out. They can't turn on their phone. They can't leave. Do you think that your, your job as a speaker would change? If you knew that, if you knew they don't listen to every word and they space out, they're not getting that million-dollar check, you'd do anything. If they started to go up to the bathroom, you'd block the door. Yeah, you'd, you'd figure out things to get you. So you don't think when you get up there and you're giving over, this is how at least you should feel, something to benefit them, that you're giving them even more than million-dollar checks. So if you you think of it like that, I'm, or, or you think you think I'm nervous to give out that? Oh, I can't give out that check. Oh, I'm not the. <laughs> All of a sudden, it would change people like this. Yeah, yeah. So you take the focus off yourself and and put it on them and put it on the value and the benefit that you you have an opportunity. Wow, I worked on this. That's as a as a pulpit rabbi as a, a sermon. I worked on this, you know, and I found a new way. Of thinking about uh, about about this, I mean, I must have seen this posted four hundred times, but this new angle. And now you you go in and you're saying to your audience, "I know you all looked at this, yeah, but did you ever think about, you know, what's what's happening over here? You know, you have Joseph, you know, and uh, corresponding with uh, with uh, Yehuda. You know, what's what's the difference? Joseph, he was able to withstand Potiphar's wife's uh, advances. No human was able to do that." It was it was superhuman. We it's hard to model that, but Yehuda he had a he had a problem he had to get out of yeah with Tamar, and he fessed up. I made a mistake. He's more human. We can identify with him more, and that's why we're called Jews from Yehuda and not Jews from Yosef. Hmm. So you see, how you, you take something and you know you're bringing that over. Ah, oh, that's a. You find a twist that you can benefit them, then they'll, they'll listen to you, and you, you can give it over. So if you can get that inside of you and think, wow, I have something unique, 
a twist on something, something that's gonna that they maybe they hadn't heard, they can leave different than they came in. I right, so what I'm uh, I make a mistake, you know, and uh, you know I don't get the best nose. I, I'm not doing enough eye contact. It's so it's okay because they're gonna get something out of that. So that's one way of there's a switch in there that uh, I try to work with people to let them know that while they're up there, it's not about them. It's what they have to benefit their audience. Yeah. What if someone has a presentation to give and, and the content isn't uh, necessarily engaging? Um, and they just, but it, it needs to be done. You know, it's it's a, a, a quarterly review or something like that. Uh, how do you how do you coach people to to maintain that engagement attention when when the material the content is is it's just not there you know it's just not 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 naturally engaging. Mm-hmm. So one way I'll try to do that is to find personal stories. If they have something that to them seems or is coming out, you know, certain things are, are more difficult to give over, or more we'd say dry. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You, uh, watch a TED talk. Let's say you know the, the TED talks that come out. Even if the subject matter might be a little dry, you'll see how they present and give it over. They they're bringing a story. They're bringing something to it um, that really makes it pop. It's very rare. I mean, you have TED talks that are better. Some you know, thirty million people watch and something. But it's generally, if you're going to get to that point where you're doing a TED or a TEDx talk, it's generally like there's nothing there. It's, but it, it only will get there usually when it has something already. So what do you want to add in that? One of the ingredients is, yeah, put put a story in. Make it, make it personal. How do I – here's my big idea. Here's the point I want to get across. How can I put some of myself in this? What can I add to this that's going to make it – um, so that it, that it's not, and that that I'll have that a lot with CEOs, with businesses, um, with rabbis who are teaching something. Sometimes they'll teach Jewish law, halacha, and uh, it's not it's not so interesting what they're giving over that particular part. But we find an angle, we find something inside of it to make it a, a exciting. Yeah, I remember at Torah, we had a rav who was teaching the uh, the halakhas, and he made it. You know, we're like sitting there; it could be, you know, it could be torturous. You know, some of it and dry, but you make it exciting, you make it interesting, you show how how it all fits in in a way. So that's where the work comes. Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I wonder if that that plays into your speakers into leaders where. Uh, you know, you're, you don't consider yourself just a person giving over the, the content, but you're actually, the, the content is representative of, of who you are. They're buying into you giving over the content. Uh, you're, 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 uh, there's a phrase I like to use called hide and speak, where sometimes people will, you know, they give a Devar Torah and they're just, they're just sharing it. They're just passing it on, but they're kind of hiding yeah. behind that Devar Torah. They're not really giving you any insight into how it relates to them personally. Um, and I think that uh, maybe that, that, you know, w- when you connect it back to yourself, it, it's a little bit, uh, it might be nervous because, you know, now you're drawing attention to yourself. But uh, but that's the part about being a leader. You're standing behind behind what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, so what are some of the blind spots that you find uh, that new speakers have uh, that, that they may not be aware of? What do you see most often? Uh, we'll see uh, if someone has uh, nervous gestures. We'll we'll see that. We'll watch on video. We'll, we'll get rid of those. Those are things that are blocking their effectiveness. So those are some of the first things we'll get rid of. Um, I'll show them right away that even though they feel nervous inside, when we watch, you'll see as nervous as you felt inside, the audience doesn't see it. 
So a new speaker is nervous inside. He has a lot of different things that are happening. Uh, and he thinks that the audience is going to see that in him. I had a speaker once. His heart was pounding so strongly, he thought the audience was going to see it through his shirt. <laughs> That's how people feel up there. So I show them. We go through. We watch everyone's video. And I said, who felt nervous? And they all raised their hand and different degrees of nervousness. And I said, did he look nervous? Did he look nervous? And they all said, no, that might be, if there's something that shoots out that says nervousness, you know, the person's always, you know, turning his guy. I used to think my rabbis used to do this. I used to think I'd get the smarter if I would turn my keeper. It didn't work, you know, but you know, nervous, nervous gestures, I mean, like adjusting the glasses. Yeah. This, you know, I, I remember once I had my, one of my kids once wrangled my glasses and I didn't have them for, you know, a day or two, whatever. And I was teaching. And so while I'm teaching, I'm going like this. I'm adjusting my glasses and they're not there. We we get into these habits that we do that, so I would do, go, people go to their belt. I mean, you probably saw this all, you know, uh, different things uh, all the time. If they're doing something that's just people like looking at it that says nervous, we'll get rid of that uh, right away. So that's one thing that we look for. And then I go through each, e even things that you wouldn't think speakers work on. Like I'll say, okay, one of the things that uh, have a problem when people are nervous is because they're not breathing correctly up there. And I got all these super adults that graduated Ivy League schools, you know, CEOs, professionals, and they're like, Eliezer, we're paying you a lot of money, and you're going to teach us how to breathe? <laughs> yes. Now, how about this one? Okay, we're all going to learn how to stand when you give a speech. Eliezer, I've been standing for 45 years doing fine without you. But have you? And then I show them, you know, all the different stances that we see up there. And everyone gets a big laugh and is saying, here's a proper ready stance. You know, so all these things that sound like, Eliezer, why are we spending time doing these? When each one, when the stance is right, when you're breathing correctly, when you're bringing all these things we're discussing, it all works like a symphony. And when you see a speaker... And someone says, Eliezer, he looks like he's been trained by you. That's a failure for me. I'm going to say, what's the first thing you saw? Because I'm going to get rid of it. But when they say, when they see a speaker and say, Eliezer, she doesn't need your help. She's a natural. I go, yes. Because the audience has no idea how much time we spent making it look that way. You know why? Because it's unnatural to look natural. We work for hours. Are breathing and standing and getting everything ready to, uh, to go. And you see this, man, when you see a TED Talk, you're like, wow, I knew she was the world's best neurologist, but I didn't know she was such a good presenter. She's coached. Most of the TED Talk people are coached. I know I get like a lot of the, the other speaker trainers. I coach this one. I coach this one. I coach this one. It's like a big, today that's a big deal. I don't know if they, you don't get it so much like with the rabbi. <laughs> they, a lot of them don't even know what a TED Talk is, but, you know, that, uh, that level so it's unnatural. We, you work at it. And then, like anything else, an athlete, a musician, you know, people go up to the first violinist after the concert, and the woman says, I would die to play like you. And when he says, oh, yeah? Are you ready to practice for eight hours a day for the next 10 years? And she says, no. He says, well, I did. You know, you think I just jumped out of bed this morning and, and, and did this? It took a lot of work. So people don't want... But when it comes to public speaking, for some reason, people just think, what, you got to, people have to train for this? You got to need a coach for this? Can't you just flap your lips? And, uh, and the, 
because since we all do it, we say, how hard can it be? And you want to hear it? You want to hear something interesting? When I ask, especially the guys, do you play an instrument? Why is it that 50% of the guys say, I don't play an instrument, I play a little drums? I always wondered why does half of the population of men play the drums? And then I figured it out. You see, when you pick up, if I ask you if you play, you say you play trumpet, you know, it's going to be a few weeks before you can even blow in that darn thing. You know, figure it out. So you can't fake that. Or a guitar, you got to learn chords. <laughs> but drums, people figure I pick up the sticks and I'm halfway there. You know what? What is it going to take? So I show them. The right hand goes bump, 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 bump on the cymbal. The left hand on the snare goes plop, plop. Your right foot goes da doom, da doom on the bass drum. And your left foot on the hi hat goes chick, chick. And they go, oh, I don't play the drums. What just happened? I just showed them it's four way coordination. Even a piano is two, if you don't include the pedals. Yeah. Much easier. They, they're much easier if they want to pick an instrument to play to say a guitar or a trumpet, they'll get by with me much faster than. <laughs> but we think just picking up, we're halfway. I think that's what happens with public speaking. I speak all the time. How hard could it be if I'm speaking to you all the time in the coffee tea room to speak on a stage in front of a thousand people? That's where we come in. Yeah, the the best speakers in the world make it look easy. That's uh, the be best. Think right. He doesn't need training. They'll say, you know, they'll see um, our, uh, Apple. What's his name, Mister oh, Apple? Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve Jobs. Yeah. So he looks naturally. Comes out dressed like a normal guy. Comes out, does his thing, and that. You know how many hours he worked on each part of it, even the parts that you think he didn't plan that. <laughs> He worked on the part so that you would say, like he'd be thinking about something, like like he's thinking about it now. He worked hard on getting that, <laughs> getting right. it to like that. He worked. So that's a perfect example of one of the best business speakers. It looks like he was a natural. He worked many hours to work on his public speaking. Let me ask you, I know you also train, uh, you're, you're an adjunct professor at uh, Yeshiva University, and you train people in the Jerusalem Kollel. Um, what are some of the things that you teach them uh, prior to going out into the field? What are, what are some of the lessons you try to impart to them? Besides, um, besides technique. Yeah, so we'll do the techniques. We'll do content development. You know, they'll get the they'll get all of that. You know, what they need to put down their talk, how to think about their talk, um, how to bring it out with the with the in in YU. I have a whole semester. I have a long time to work. So we'll work on uh, a speech to persuade, a speech to educate, a, a, a humorous speech, a chesped, a, a, a um, eulogy. You know, we'll we'll work so they'll get a chance to do the, the to feel those out. Um, and at the same time, we're learning the skills uh, to do it. So I'm, in my classes, I'm I'm taking them, you know, taking them through in the shorter sessions, like you know, when I have a. a four two-hour sessions, and we'll do a certain amount. So depending on how much time I have them, well, who, who wants, like a CEO wants his company to have uh, certain skills. What do they need those skills for? What are they going to be doing? I was invited to uh, work with a, a team of um, expert witnesses who are specialized in their field. Uh, this particular place was engineering um, and stuff. So they would be, if there was a case, a court case of a car accident, yeah, yeah. Uh, they would know exactly if the car is going this far, what kind of tires they had, and the floor was like, 
and they would do their expert testimony, and there was a good chance that the case would be decided by their expert testimony. So the owner of the company brought me in to work with them. They're experts in their field, but they weren't necessarily good presenters and communicators. If I can now have them be able to present better their case, that could be worth millions to their clients. Amazing. Tell me some of the, uh, uh, we're wrapping up uh, you know, shortly, but uh, I, I want to know who, who you admire in the speaking world. Um, you know, who are some of the models, influences that, that have uh, shaped you, the way that you speak or, or train? Um, I think you mentioned some of them. People, the people that used to come that I used to get to see uh, uh, at Asia Tara, the, the Rob Brevdes, uh, Rob Noach Weinberg's at Sal. You know, a, a master communicator, and people when they heard hear of Noah, they say, "Oh, he was he was a natural, wasn't he?" Again, that's that's the ultimate a natural. He knew exactly what he was doing. I know, but spending uh, you know as his personal assistant, you know, and, and talking to him and being with him, that you know, when he used his hand and he used his humor and his eye contact, when the, he thought about when he first started, he wasn't a good public speaker. Yeah, he told me he, he would flopped. But he realized that if I'm going to change the world the way I want to, I need to get this skill. And he worked on it. Yeah. And uh, it, was, uh, it was, you know, great. So uh, people like that, I don't have anyone like, you know, uh, favorites. When I see a speaker, they come up there and they're telling stories and they grip the audience. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll have speakers, I'm, I'm supposed to watch them. You know, they're paying me a lot of money to give them feedback. And then halfway through, I'm like, uh-oh. I was so enthralled. I was so captivated. <laughs> you know, okay, you know, tell me, tell me how to improve. And you know what? Many times I, I talking to clients and stuff like that when certain things are working, when there's, there's always something that someone needs somehow, you know, to find that they, they want to work. But you know what? If something's not broken, you know, I'm not just trying, you know, to, to fudge it. I'll say, you know what? It was very good. Oh, come on, Elias, give it to me, you know. No, it's, it's working. We maybe we could work on this, that, and the other thing, but uh, you know that's uh, that's just the way it is. You know, we're not uh, some people just things are working well, and uh, you don't have to fix it. Right? Has there any? Has there ever been anybody that you haven't been able to train? You just said, I, I, I just, you know, I, we can't work together. You're coming at it. Yeah, I get, um, I don't know, as far as, well, people ask me, um, let me, let me, let me rephrase the question and, and then um, we'll, get, we'll get back to it. Someone asked me, um, could everybody become a good speaker? Could everyone, you know, speak? Not everyone's going to be a great speaker. Some people, Hashem just gives them, certain skills, certain talents, and it's easier for them. My thing is everybody could become better. You know, give them something to become better. But not everyone, I have people that I'm working with sometimes that, you know, they're not going to be able, they're not going to be a Charlie Arari. Or, you know, I get people who call me up, how long is it going to take you to make me Charlie Arari? You know, it's it's a, a ridiculous thing, you know, to, to be able to do that. I'll help you to become you, you better. So, so that's that. Not, not that's not everyone uh, is going to be a great speaker, but everyone could become better. It's not that you know, you know, don't get up at all. You know, people will, you know will say everyone has will have a different role in life and has different um, 
jewels inside of them, diamonds in that's unique to them, their Torah, their education, their personality, who they are, that they can give something to the world. Everyone has that. You want to be able to bring that out. But, uh, you know, not everyone, as you know, not everyone is going to be able to do stand-up comedy. You know, they have comedy clubs and they have club that you can come in, you know, and uh, what do you call the kind of club you come in, you can stand in? Uh, open mic. Yeah. Op open mic type of things. You know, and people will try it and work on their confidence and like that. But not, you know, some people have it and some people don't. So you work with what uh, what they have. It's like that. It's like that in anything. You know, not everyone's going to be an Olympic athlete, you know, but maybe a person could do a short marathon. And last question I want to ask you is how important do you think public speaking is a skill in as we enter into the age of AI and, and uh, you know, chat GPT and, and writing speeches and, and all that kind of stuff? and 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 machines taking over human skills. Where do you see public speaking fitting into that? Interesting. Recently, um, I've been getting more uh, more involved. They have this uh, they have this um, app that you speak into it, and it tells you how many ums that you said. It tells you how fast you're speaking. Uh, so that a lot of the questions from the speaker trainers was, "Is this going to put us out of business? So people won't need us anymore." Uh, but the truth is they're going to need the human side also because the machine's not going to be able. There's a lot of things that we were talking about today in this interview in the Kishkas to get the people that that the, the app is just not going to do. Okay, counting ums and speed, you know, you talk too fast just to slow down or it tells you it tells you where your eye contact is <laughs> too much of one side. It's amazing what the uh, – but uh, someone someone mentioned something to me. I liked it. They said, you know – a hammer was a great invention, but it's only going to go so far. You still need the carpenter to, to work it. It's an incredible tool, and I think that's how I'm, I'm looking at uh, yeah, as far as from a, a speaker trainer and a public uh, speaker is uh, concerned uh, uh, to use. Yeah, if you use, use it as a tool, you know, it takes the right words that you need, this and that, but you got to use it with the human element and i think then it will be it will be productive so anywhere i should direct people to you you can see more uh in my on my linkedin profile of basic things but if if anyone's uh, interested most most of my work is coming from i've you know been doing this for over 25 years so i'm um, pretty much people know he's the speaking guy you know if you need someone to help you you know a ceo a business person who really wants to get out there and start speaking more and get up at these events. We're having a lot more now in the Jewish community. There's a lot more events happening. You want to do a breakout session. You want to get on a panel. Um, I'm getting a lot of now uh, business people who want to now step up and be able to present them themselves, not just in their business, but they're, once you're successful in business and you're credible, people will want you to speak on other things also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to The Magid Method, and I'm Daniel Steinberg. There's a secret that great public speakers know. Did you know there's a method for cutting straight through to an audience's heart, grabbing their attention and holding it, and making a memorable impact with your presentation? The best speakers in the world utilize it, and now you can too, every time you get up to speak. Download your free Magid Method of Public Speaking template at magidmethod.com. M-A-G-G-I-D-M-E-T-H-O-D.com. The Magid Method will teach you how to find your authentic voice, craft meaningful presentations, manage people's attention, and build unbreakable bonds with your audience. 
Go to MyGoodMethod.com and download your free copy now.